Vipassana. This morning we'll go more deeply, I think, into the practice of awareness of awareness, probing right into not only the nature of awareness, but into the experience of being someone who is aware. So again, this is not, there is a role for philosophical analysis, really, you know, applying logic and so forth. Uh, definitely has value. And again, I'm always coming back to the theme, the theme of complementarity. There's a value for that, really philosophical analysis, logical analysis, and this is not that. This is really empirical, immediate experience, investigation into the lived sense of being conscious, of being one who is conscious. Now, a central theme here of this practice of awareness of awareness, even with maybe a sharper edge than in mindfulness of breathing, is whatever thoughts arise, just release them. The optimal is actually to maintain just a flow of utterly non-discursive, non-conceptual awareness. So, whenever that's marred, then we just try to repair it as quickly as possible, um, just by, of course, releasing, releasing, releasing. Now, as we, as we go deeper into this practice in particular, it's not at all uncommon for people to experience fear. That can happen generally in shamatha, because there is a, an unraveling that's taking place, whether it's mindfulness of breathing, settling the mind, awareness of awareness, an unraveling. Uh, the grasping onto I am, bound up in personal history, bound up in our imagination of what our future is going to be, I am, I have these qualities, and so forth. All of that is being loosened up in any kind of shamatha practice, but very explicitly here, where we're just withdrawing from everything that's familiar in terms of all objects of the mind and all objects of the senses. And just generally speaking, I mean, it could, I guess it's just a truism, um, we are prone to fear of the unknown because we don't know what's there. And so as we withdraw from the known, objects, memory, anticipation, hopes, fears, and all of that, and just come right into naked awareness, which we've experienced many times, but always veiled in deep sleep. And now we're coming into that, really, as if for the first time. Then we're releasing all that is familiar, going into that which is unfamiliar. And in the very process, we can easily, there can easily arise a sense, I'm dissolving. I'm going to get lost here. So should any kind of anxiety arise at any time, in the shamatha practice in particular, in general, in this practice in particular, what I'd really encourage you to do is to examine closely what is the nature of the fear. Fear of what? Exactly fear of what? Uh, I'm afraid of cobras if they're near me. If I see them 15 feet away, I just say, okay, you stay there, I'll stay here, and all's well. You know, I'm not that afraid of them if they're way over there. But I, if I see one in bed with me, um, I think I would be upset. <laughs> don't, don't put that to the test, you know. <laughs> but I, I think I really would be. I think I would be, oh, a cobra in my bed. I think I would, I would be upset with that. I would be afraid. And that's really good because, <laughs> you know, to think, oh, let's spoon, you know, might be a really bad idea. <laughs> so some type, the simple point is, again, an obvious one, pardon me for belaboring the point, but there's some things that are really worth fearing. 
because there's something, there's danger there, and the fear then brings the, the blood where it needs to go, off into the large limbs, and then we can we move away from that could, which could harm us. But when it's a general anxiety disorder, or whether when it's a general fear of death, well, that's not helpful, because there's, there's no tricky maneuver we can do. Is oh, there's death over here, I'll just go way over here. I mean, sooner or later, it's going to happen, and if we can postpone it as long as, as possible, excellent. But to fear death generically, well, that's not very useful. So, to attend closely, what exactly is it that one is afraid of? Very helpful. And if you see that it's completely useless, maybe already that recognition will help you re begin to release it. Because sometimes the fear are useful, some are just useless. And the fear that arises in shamatha, if it's a fear of self-annihilation, oh, very interesting. Good. Exactly what is the nature of the self for which there's a fear that it's going to be annihilated? If it doesn't exist in the first place, then there's no reason to fear. If it really does exist, why do you think it's going to not exist? Depends on who you think you are. So there's one point. Here's a related point. That marvelous phrase from Dom Dumba, I cited yesterday, I believe. Give up attachment to this life. You know generically what it means, or broadly what it means. It's giving up attachment to the eight mundane concerns. I think in the modern world, this really often boils down to three mundane concerns. As I've engaged with academia, with scientists, with people in the modern world, it's pretty much wealth, power, and fame, as far as I can tell. Wealth, power as an influence, and fame, reputation, status, and all of that seems to be pretty much boiled down to that. And so, whew, releasing that, that's on a coarse level, just like there's coarse impermanence and subtle impermanence. There's giving up attachment to this life, the affairs, the concerns of this life, on a coarse level. But now, as we're doing this practice, which will begin now very shortly, here's a subtle level. And that is, why do thoughts catch us? Not why do they arise, they arise out of sheer habit, momentum there. And it's tied into physiology, the nervous system, the prana system. Thoughts are going to come up until that prana system is really serenely balanced. It's, they're just going to happen. Now, when it, when it gets profoundly balanced, as in the pranas coming into the heart chakra, dissolving there, then you're going to have a really quiet mind. It's called shamatha. But until then, just physiologically, thoughts are going to arise. But why do they catch us? Why do they snag us, drag us around? Attachment. They don't have the power all on their own. The thoughts do not have enough power on their own side to come and capture you. We have to be, cap we have to be capturable. I just thought of the word for the, the common word for hooker, for a prostitute. <laughs> it's a hooker. It's a hooker, right? That's a really good word. Because they stand... At, at, I've seen them. I, I, I drove through Phuket town, isn't it? And somebody, and I saw all those young ladies offering massages, you know, on the side of the road. Um, and so they're hookers. Because if a man comes and says, would you like to come home with me or whatever, they're ready to be hooked. If you go to a woman who's not a prostitute and just say, you want to come home to me and have sex? She'll say, no. Why do you ask? You know, she's not a hooker. There's no hook. But if a man comes to a hooker and says, you want to go sleep with me? She says, oh, yeah, that's what I'm here for. And he hooks her and takes her away. Right? So when the thoughts come, here's the motto of the day. 
don't be a hooker. straight. The Tibetan word for rishi, you know, the Sanskrit word rishi, like maharishi, rishi. The Tibetan word is dangsong, dangsong, which means straight, 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 straight. So when the thoughts come to hook you, they're, they're, they're very happy to hook, just like a, a lusty man looking for a hooker. They're very happy to hook. But if you're, if you're straight, it's like trying to hook a pin like that from the end. You just can't. It's just, it doesn't hook back. It's a straightened hook. It's a dangsong. It's a rishi. So be a rishi. Be straight. When the thoughts come, just release them. Final point. The two, the two ways of viewing Buddha nature, profoundly complementary. This is straight from the Dalai Lama. Both very deep, both very different. And they are complementary. And there's the Galupa, as, as His Holiness citing, citing a great Sakya master said, the Galupa approach, the understanding, the orientation towards Buddha nature is from the perspective of a sentient being. That is, Tsongkhapa was reaching down and projecting his mind to that of a sentient being and looking from that perspective on Buddha nature and from this massive logical mind, I mean, resounding power of intellect. He was saying, how can we understand Buddha nature from the perspective of a sentient being? And the only rational way to look at it is your Buddha nature is a potential. It's a potential. And if you put all the causes and conditions together, ethics, samadhi, wisdom, and so forth, then that potential, just like a seed, will be germinated, and then it will give rise to something that, isn't, that wasn't there previously. That is, you have no Buddha qualities now, but you have the potential for all of them. Put this causes and conditions together, and the seed of enlightenment, your Buddha nature, will germinate, and it will give rise to qualities that were not there before, but they are now because the potential has become actuality. Now, those words just are sensible. They're really sensible. And then it doesn't give you any grounds for thinking, oh, you know, for, for a spiritual pride or s s mystical mumbo-jumbo. Or justifying one's behavior, oh, I'm crazy wisdom dude, you know. I'm, tr I'm, I'm crazy wisdom. Come and be a hooker. You know, there's no grounds for that. So on the one hand, and it also suggests roll up your sleeves and get to work, because this is going to be... This is going to be a lot of work uh, because what you do have is a mess. You've got mental afflictions, you've got non-virtue, you've got a lot of crap. This, this, is, this is a major overhaul here. So roll up your sleeves and get to work. This is a developmental model and take that, poten that potential and turn it into actuality on the one hand. On the other hand, there's the, the Dzogchen approach, the Mahamudra approach, which, looks, which is looking at the same reality, Buddha nature, but from a Buddhist perspective. So says the Dalai Lama, this great, and also the Sakya Master, and said, from this perspective, the Buddha nature is not a potentiality, it's an actuality. It's an actuality. All of the qualities of the Buddha are there. Dhammakaya, Sambhogakaya, Nirmanakaya, they're already there, completely there. They're just obscured. They're just veiled. And so what you really need to do is remove those veils, otherwise you don't get any of the benefit of the reality that is already there. Okay? So that one, from a sentient being's perspective, in a way, it really doesn't make any sense because it, it's already there, but like, why should I believe that? 
And all I can hope for is I've got potential, but believe there's actually a Buddha here. Maybe somebody other, maybe, maybe Buddha Shakyamuni's Dharmakaya pervades where I am, but not me. You know, I'm just 100% schmuck, you know, deluded sentient being. So it, we're not going to get to it from logic, as I commented, I think, earlier. It's going to be something from another side. But the point here is this, and that is the advantage, because both of these have advantages. Both of these have downsides. But the discovery model, this Dzogchen approach to viewing Buddha nature as a, an actual reality here and now, Buddha mind here and now, the essential, na the essential nature of your mind already is Dharmakaya. It's this discovery model. And it's suggesting something of enormous, enormous importance, I think especially for the modern world. And that is we don't have to do it all ourselves. We don't all have to do it, everything with sheer effort, with intelligence, with striving diligently. That in fact, by releasing and releasing and releasing, there really is a, a source of healing here, a source of perfection, a source of awakening that is just waiting to, how do you say, be aroused, be, to be allowed to manifest and bring about this marvelous transformation of enlightenment. And it's get out of the way. Get out of the way. You know. And, and the, the tide, the current, will carry you to shamatha. The current will then carry you if you keep on releasing grasping, even grasping for luminosity, bliss, non-conceptuality, even release that clinging, then the current can take you right to Buddha nature. And that's what Padmasambhava says about the practice for this morning. You may even realize Buddha nature, Rikpa. How? By attending closely to the very nature of awareness and releasing all grasping. Okay? So, let's do it.
Settle your body in its natural state, the respiration in its natural rhythm. And calm your mind with mindfulness of breathing. and let your eyes be at least partially open. And cast your awareness downwards, not down onto any visual object, just down, without focusing on any, on any object. just be. One hardly needs any attitude. If you just be, you are being present, which means you are being aware. Just be.
do anything. Don't get caught up by thoughts. Don't think about this or that. Any thought that comes up, release it instantly. Don't be anyone. Just be. if you have commented how difficult, elusive, subtle the practice of awareness of awareness is. But for now, release all such memories and concepts and note how profoundly easy, utterly easy it is. To just be. It's easier than doing anything. It comes before doing anything. As you rest in this mode, not attending to anything, something becomes obvious. And that as is that you are being aware. You're not being dead or unconscious. So as you are already being aware, Keep it simple and just maintain a flow of being aware, of being aware.
And now at your own pace, your own rhythm, conjoined with the rhythm of the breath if you find it helpful. Otherwise, simply establish your own rhythm. Single-pointedly focus your awareness. Withdraw your awareness into that sheer, unadorned, unelaborated experience of being aware. So it's as if the world fades out as you withdraw your awareness from all of the senses, even the sense of the mind, right into the very nucleus of awareness itself. It's as, it's as if the life force is just being pulled away from all of the environment, all the sense fields. It's being drawn home. And then with a sense of utter release, total relaxation, Simply release your awareness into space, but without attending to or latching onto any object, and gently sustaining the flow of awareness of awareness. Invert and release.
as your awareness is concentrated, inverted, and then released. Throughout this entire cycle, the whole oscillation, observe closely now. Do you have an experience of something subjective from your side that is constant? That is observing the whole process? something unchanging. Observe closely as you invert your awareness and then release fully, releasing your awareness into space without an object. And see that throughout the course of the cycle, your breathing continues to flow unimpededly, effortlessly, smoothly, without intervention. The body loose and relaxed.
return to the beginning and with the greatest of ease stop doing anything. What could be easier than releasing all effort to, to do anything? And just be present. Which is to be just aware and be aware of being aware. So, with reference to the practice yesterday morning, drawing the awareness right into the experience of awareness itself, which is by nature luminous, Padmasambhava comments that this can be very effective in overcoming laxity, because luminosity is just the opposite of the darkness of laxity. And for this practice, where he encourages us to direct our attention downwards, just to ground the awareness but not in an object, not in tactile sensations, just down. And then engaging the following practice, he said, this can be very helpful, this can be effective for overcoming excitation, agitation. Just, and it's in that release, that utter release. And then coming in upon the, that which is aware. So a lot could be said, but I think I'll confine it to about one minute. What will you realize during this practice? Well, if it's a straight shamatha practice, and that's where it goes, and it's going to take you, of course, to the substrate consciousness, which is conditioned, it's impermanent, it's momentary, rises and passes. But an important point in Buddhism, sometimes overlooked, is when in Buddhism we say something is impermanent, it does not mean that eventually it will be destroyed, you know, like no longer present, like a house. It's a house, it's a house, it's a house. Oh, now it's not a house at all. That house is nowhere. There's no house there. It just got hit by a bomb or whatever. That's course impermanence. And many, many things of that sort. They're, they were there and then just not there anymore. There's just no house. You look, it's, just, it's dirt. There's no house there. Gone, right? So many times impermanence does refer to that. But, the, but not everything that is impermanent is subject to that kind of impermanence. There it was, and now it is no longer. It is nowhere to be found. Rather, the more subtle impermanence simply suggests that the phenomenon in question is arising from moment to moment, never static, never, never unchanging, never just that, never not in flux. That is the nature of the substrate consciousness. It's never not in flux. It's never not a current. It's never not arising moment to moment to moment to moment to moment. It is impermanent, but it never terminates. 
one points to any person. Yochim. Yochim has a substrate consciousness. Will there be some point at which that sub substrate consciousness just terminates? Absolutely gone. Nope. It's still impermanent, but doesn't just completely vanish. So that's the nature of the substrate consciousness, of course, all of the events of the psyche, the coarse mind. Whereas, speaking from the Dzogchen perspective, if we're referring to Rikpa, pristine awareness, primordial consciousness, this is beyond the whole domain of change. It doesn't change. It's not momentary. It's not conditioned. It does not arise in dependence upon causes and conditions. So it's beyond that. And when one really uses the language sharply, because it would be easy to say, okay, well, in that case, it's permanent, because it's not changing. Well, that means permanent. But then just to, th to caution us, the thinking that we can, you know what a lasso, everybody knows what a lasso, lasso is, yeah? The cowboys used a lot to rope in cows and so forth. Or to warn us against thinking that we can throw out the lasso of our, con of our concepts, the conceptual mind, and catch Rikpa. Ah, now I got it. I finally got it. I always found Rikpa so hard to understand, but now I've got it. Yeehaw, come in, you little doggy, you know. I've got you, I've got you. Uh, just to warn us off of that silly notion, because Rikpa is not an object of the, intel in of the intelligence or the intellect, uh, Rikpa is beyond the conceptual constructs of permanent and, and impermanent. So as soon as you think you've got a conceptual box to put it into, I'm, I was about to say, think again, Maybe that's not quite the best. <laughs> maybe that's not the best advice. Uh, let go. Let go. Let go of the categories of permanent, impermanent. But the first one to let go of is the category of impermanent, because it's clearly not that. And that's what distinguishes. That's a crucial factor. It's one of the vajra, the vajra seven vajra qualities of pristine awareness, primordial consciousness. It's not like anything else in samsara. They're all conditioned all arising in dependence upon causes and conditions, they all have a momentary nature. And Rikpa doesn't. It doesn't. Oh, so. Good. So let's continue practicing. Continuity is the key, always.